Giant Penny, Episode 3, Sword and Sorcery, 80s Style. Welcome to Giant Penny, Episode 3. Tonight we discuss the 1980s sword and sorcery craze, as James calls it. Right. I think it was a craze for James. It was a, <laughs> enough of a thing for the rest. It was a thing. I'm not sure about craze. Uh, we have we've got Jay, James, and me, Jason. It's a triple J evening. <laughs> the James. Before we go too deep into it, tell us a survey of the types of works that we're talking about because some of those right, right. may be like. So I, I mean, you know, it depends on how you define sword and sorcery. You know, if you go to like movie tracking websites, they'll consider things like Lord of the Rings sword and sorcery, whereas most hardcore fans of the genre would consider that epic fantasy. That's epic fantasy, right? Yeah. So there's sword and sorcery, but there's also the kind of a. Uh, offshoot genres the melding of sword and sorcery and science fiction so it's kind of like they took the popularity i, I kind of think of things like uh, masters of the universe thundercats thunder the barbarian john blackstar all these kind of early 80s late 70s sword and science uh tv shows is kind of melding the popularity of conan the barbarian and the star wars craze into kind of one thing and just saying hey why does it have to be one or the other let's just hit all our bases with these two uh, yeah, big was, fads, and it kind of created a sub fad of its own. You would agree that we're, we're like Conan is the founding work of of this genre, but we're talking yeah, I, about I, the resurgence in the seventies and eighties, right? Well, Obviously, Conan is. I, I think you can't really have sword. I mean, he is sword and sorcery. I mean, it, you know, it's just like Lord of the Rings is the founding of epic fantasy. Conan the Barbarian, and I guess Cole the Conqueror, the kind of predecessor for. Conan by Robert E. Howard are the uh, it's kind of like the foundational cornerstone of that entire genre. So yeah, I, and I think you know you've seen epic fantasy kind of continue on as a popular genre, probably due to the fact of uh, role playing games kind of seem to own a lot of space. You know, like Dungeons and Dragons seems very much Tolkien esque world, whereas there have been attempts to make Conan style RPGs, but they just haven't taken off because I think the world building isn't as in depth as Tolkien's. So. Yeah. Did you feel like just the timing of it, Jason? You you can have an opinion on this, even if you don't like Thunder the Barbarian, like I do. But all of these <laughs> things seems inconceivable. They're like waves lapping against a shore in the sense that there's a certain timing where things that were pulp in nature, or perhaps the comic strips that were from the pulp era, they kind of sit there and and gain. There's a bunch of old timers that liked them and grew up on the stuff that was derived from that. And then when they get a chance to make stuff in the seventies and eighties, it's kind of what they love and they remake it. Examples, Star Wars is a lot like Flash Gordon and space opera from the earlier pulpy era to a new audience like me. I was eight. It was like, no, this is a new thing and it's the greatest ever. But to George Lucas, it was derived from or homage to a lot of Flash Gordon-y stuff. Similarly, Conan and its ilk was out there in the 30s, 40s, and probably a paperback mode in the 50s. And so you get these Roy Thomas type people that when they get a chance to make comics, they go, I want to bring that back. And so on with the cartoons. Well, Conan's kind of an interesting uh, story. Coming out. What's interesting about Conan is he's actually owes, I think, his resurgence, if, you, if he ever had a uh, original surgeons, 
to the Lord of the Rings craze of the 60s, what had happened was um, he, he, they published the original Conan books in pulp format. You know, they were popular enough, but they weren't a craze or anything. Uh, they tried reissuing them in paperbacks. They never really caught on. Then the Lord of the Rings fat hit and hit huge, and, and publishers were scrambling for this, you know, sword and sorcery slash high fantasy material. And the Howard Estate happened to have several books worth. And the only difference was when they tried to relaunch it, they had uh, Frank Frazetta's cover art, which, uh, you know, kind of really sold, I think, what the genre really is about. I think the distinction for me between high fantasy and sword and sorcery is that sword and sorcery is fantasy, but it has a horror element to it. You know, if you've ever read Howard's original work, it's like he's a thief, he's a, you know, a, a mercenary, he's whatever. And then the supernatural, inhuman oh, like a snake or a horrible wizard, right? Just something that some horror element pops into it. Which uh, now there are kind of scary horror elements to Tolkien and other high fantasy, but it's not as prominent. And it's not told in a horror fashion like Howard's work is. Well, we think of that as part of it now. And yet, through a historical accident, it may have been because Howard was friends with and influenced by Lovecraft. I mean, they're basically right. in the same era. And it's been speculated before that, like, the Conan universe is the prehistoric or ancient version of the Lovecraft universe where those creatures are extraterrestrial and the old ones and all that. Well, we know they're uh, uh, very big pen pals and they wrote to each other and uh, obviously Howard looked up to, to Lovecraft. So you mentioned the Frazetta covers. And to me, when you mention sword and sorcery, whether you're talking about a cartoon like He-Man or a paperback in the sixties or, or anything, isn't it true that immediately in the back of your mind, you're picturing the male form and female form, but a very muscular male form that that's always been a visual element of sword and sorcery you don't have sword and sorcery where the guy's wearing a trench coat and you know it's like a steve ditko skinny guy it's always yeah i mean i i would say that you know they're, they're almost nude figures and, and you are the women are very voluptuous the men are very bodybuilder-esque i guess yeah, right they all look like bodybuilders just like they did in the ancient times that's yeah. science that's just science and it's always uh the that ripplingly muscled guy as you mentioned, the supernatural, the giant snake. Not, not that there's anything homoerotic about a guy with his muscular <laughs> arms wrapped around a huge uh, phallic <laughs> snake. <laughs> but I, that's what I remember. My dad had it. My dad is an artist. And, he and the some. women, are, they either tend to be uh, like kind of shrieking away from, they be, or they're a sorceress, they're evil or something, and they're casting spells at the hero. Or they're curled up around his leg like, kittens or something. Right, right. <laughs> like the, so, that's the Star Wars poster, right? The first. <laughs> yeah, Leia's not quite curled up, but she's like kind of on one knee with a with a blaster in her hand. Beneath Luke Skywalker, but not quite as bad as uh, Conan's lady friend on the original Conan book. Jason, what's this about your dad being an artist? Oh, I just, he is an artist. <laughs> but he has, he has a lot of art books, you know, in his collection. And when I was a kid, I was allowed to look at them, but the Frazetta ones were a lot more interesting to me than, you know, Van Gogh or something like that. <laughs> the ones that had a guy with a sword fighting a monster. And right. Probably the topless women were part of it. Too. And I think you could kind of say that, and, and it's actually kind of true that, because uh, you can see it from the notes from a lot of the books Dark Horse is releasing, that that Frazetta artwork was the basis for Masters of the Universe. Yeah. And, uh, and I don't know if it, if it extends to Thundar, but I wouldn't be surprised if that had a, a bit of a, influence on it you know i mean right. i think that you could say that frazetta created the whole visual language of sword and sorcery as we tend to think of it the popular visual language 
You look at how Conan, for example, was depicted in every other paperback cover or pulp cover. He was always kind of more of a Johnny Weissmuller Tarzan type or like a Roman gladiator. He was never this long-haired savage with the big metal belts and and, uh, wristbands and the teeth necklaces and this whole jagged set. I mean, the furs and everything like that. If you look at any kind of like little history of Conan books, it's, it's never like the popular Frazetta Buscema, Barry Windsor Smith version of Conan. It's always this kind of more Prince Valianty type hero. Well, to me, you called it a craze. Well, it, okay, it's a craze that comes back in the late 70s and the 80s and then really makes it into children's toys and cartoons and everything. I would speculate, I would posit that it was Conan's being brought back by Roy Thomas at Marvel Comics and specifically Marvel's decision to go into a magazine line such that there's a full-size magazine in the mass market, Savage Sword of Conan, with beautiful painted covers uh, beautiful black and white art, so it's not just people who are flipping through the comic book racks, but there's this ubiquitous, and by the way, I think it sold pretty well, um, oh, yeah. Conan magazine that in the paper well, 300 all, issues. All through the 70s, Savage Sword of Conan. And so that sort of sets the stage for Thunder of the Barbarian. And then we can talk about He-Man. I think He-Man is like Star Wars and Conan had a baby. You know, it's kind of got that mythic character with the Darth Vader character and everything that that one was clearly created to be kind of a toy universe where you could have Luke Skywalker be a hero instead he's He-Man. But the visual, the visual of the muscle-bound sword and sorcery was just re-implanted upon the American psyche by Savage Sword of Conan. Do you think I'm right? Yeah, absolutely. I, I think that, um, you know, I think that the paperback craze kicked it off, but there was only so much material that Howard had created. You know, you're not going to have something that's going to last decades the way Conan has just a few books. Uh, I think that most people our age discovered Conan not through the paperback aisle, but through the magazine aisle or the comic book aisle. I, I remember my first Conan book being a, a, one of the Savage Sword of Conan magazine. And actually, you know, you talk about the Conan He-Man connection. Earl Norum was famous for doing many of those Savage Sword of Conan covers probably one of the most prolific artists they had. And he also did a lot of artwork for uh, Masters of the Universe, the books, the toys. I don't know if he did any packaging art, but his art style is very similar to the one artist used for those. So, I mean, there's a definite connection there, and it's a definite evolution. I, I think Thundar is another important kind of creation that was... And like the one you mentioned, it has a strong tie to the comics because it's Steve Gerber, and they brought in Kirby to do character designs. Right, Alex Toth, another great comic book artist who's... Definitely on that Mount Rushmore alongside the likes of a Kirby. You know, that one's got the, the other, if you were going to do like, what's another thing that was a craze? It's this dystopian Planet of the Apes, Soylent Green is People wave of the 70s. And Thundar brings together the sword and sorcery with that sort of commandy. Kirby would be commandy, which was Planet of the Apes, which was post-apocalyptic Earth. And actually, you know, that's a, that's a strong theme. You know, originally, even though... Um, it ended up being that He-Man was set on a planet called Eternia at the center of the universe. It was actually one of the original concepts from what I've read was that it was set on a post-apocalyptic world, perhaps Earth, I don't know. Uh, and that's where you kind of get this, the combination of like high technology from like the, you know, as the remnants of the previous advanced civilization with the kind of savage weaponry and gangs, you know, like the swords and the axes and all the stuff. So that's what kind of, so He-Man originally was kind of conceived as that. And then, Jason, you're more of a Thundercats expert. Isn't uh, 
they're escaping from like a doomed world onto a, a place called the third earth or something along that line, right? Yeah, yeah, there's a little bit of the uh, Superman Krypton thing of like a doomed planet and they come to Earth. But yeah, the original, that, that one too, the original pitch was that they called it Third Earth because there had been two kind of apocalyptic events. You know, the first Earth ended, then the second Earth. I suppose that, that probably meant to evoke the Tolkien Middle Earth idea too, but it was it was supposed to be that some kind of apocalypse had happened on Earth. Yeah, same kind of deal. So you had the high technology coming from the, the doomed planet of Thundera. Then everything on Earth had been reduced to a kind of primitive, uh, more medieval kind of setting and remnants of... Let's put some years on some of this stuff so we can figure out. Yeah. I think it's significant. What influences what? Like what? Great. Scene? I know Thundar was 1981. It was a Ruby Spears production. I know He-Man was 83. Yeah, I believe so. Um, I remember when it now, came before out. Before He-Man, though, there was actually Filmation tried to do a series called Black Star. And yep. It was basically kind of a John Carter riff. But if you look at it, it's extremely, you could tell it along with Thundar was kind of like, you know, the predecessor or the prototype to uh masters of the universe all right and let's put a year on thundercast does it come along after after he man yeah yeah I think maybe 85 there you go do you guys remember that there was a conan cartoon right around this time conan was, there, was it that's the title was it 91 says that was 92 that's not the 80s 92 yeah i i remember that one it was a kind of an interesting cartoon i actually bought the first disc or whatever, you know, they, they released the series on DVD about the first set or whatever. And it was kind of like he had a special sword and a... I mean, that's yeah. what's comical about that cartoon is Conan has to be able to slice people in half. I mean, he, he <laughs> rends people down the middle, their spines are, you know, <laughs> cartoon, nobody well, can... I mean, what's funny about all of them is that, you know, they all have swords as weapons, but they haven't cut a single person with them, you know? <laughs> For Thundar, they came up with this sword that was kind of like a lightsaber. And uh, just sort of whacked people. It was a it was a light whacker. Right. But, um, yeah. That's why Thor well, was can... like has the perfect weapon for that kind of a character because you don't have to worry about slicing. It's a bludgeoning object. <laughs> but uh... but they but they use the swords to cut through doors and stuff. It's right. It's oh, it cut good. doors like butter. But yeah. you got in a fight with it. No one got up. Yeah, he. I don't think He-Man was allowed to do much. He often just lifted his opponents and, and threw them into a mud pit, <laughs> which always seemed to be around in Eternia. They had quite a few mud pits that you would yeah. grab the guy say like a, a one-liner that was horrible and then throw him into a mud pit or throw and him there was always a lesson at the end just like fat right. hour it was like a, yeah. all right kids let's take it down let's, let's that's keep for it. the parents though that was because of all the pressure they were putting on them there was like a regulatory requirement for children's programming to have some kind of moral like that right gi joe which was funny too when you like watch cartoons today like i was watching like some of the justice leagues and some of the fights of Superman and Darkseid or whoever were just are, like just so brutal. I was almost shocked. Like, wow, I can't believe this is like yeah. a kid's cartoon. This is what I wanted to see when I was a kid, but we we never got that. I I remember I, yeah. I was a huge Ninja Turtles fan. After like what season one or two, Michelangelo wasn't allowed to use nunchucks anymore. He had to use a grappling hook as his weapon. Yeah, that's not that's not right. James, so, have you seen all the He Man's? I just have to get that on the record. You've seen them no, all. I have not. I've not seen all the He Man's. I actually own the complete set, but I. I find them a little tedious at the age in my mid thirties here. <laughs> They're not a little hard as to watch. Good as they were when I was a kid, and as you know, I, I grew up a lot in Korea, so I was just basically subject to the whims of AFRTS now AFN's programming choices, which often make the cheapest material possible. I'm still, I still want you to give the the reboot another try, James. The the Masters of the Universe from 2002. 
Yeah, I, 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 mean, I probably will. I own the complete series. I bought like a box set with all of them. Oh, it's kind of I, I was like, oh, this is going to be great, you know. Yeah. Oh, it's kind of a sad because I, I bought this set. I was like, oh, you know what? I, I don't want to watch it by myself, but when my son's a little bit older, I'll put these on and okay. it'll be great. But then uh, my friend David told me he put on some Masters of the Universe for his two boys who are the right age, and they're like, Dad, this is lame. Yeah. <laughs> I tried to get my son to watch Johnny Quest with me because I love Johnny Quest more right. than anything. And he's like, oh. And so I was like, you look kind of like Johnny Quest. You can imagine you're Johnny Quest and I'm <laughs> Quest. <laughs> that did not happen. <laughs> yeah, I just see it. It's kids it's like when you watch the kids, I mean, these new cartoons with the CG, they all look like movies now, you know? I, I, I can't even believe it. Like, there's a new Ninja Turtles cartoon that, you know, makes mine look like it was done in the Stone Age, you know? It just, they're so terrible, though. The stories are terrible. Are they? I don't know. I, don't, I, can't, I can't be bothered to watch them, but I know that those uh, <laughs> Justice League cartoons and stuff are pretty good. Those are good. They're better than... Like if I watch Superpower Scene Galactic Guardians and then watch it like a modern Bruce Tim Justice League, there's no comparison. The Bruce Tim wins it every time. Oh, I know. Those are great. And even Young Justice is great. I don't even know if he had anything to do with that, but it was those are those DC cartoons are kinda like the best cartoons anybody's done. Right mm -hmm. after Masters of the Universe, yep. <laughs> I, a question on Masters of the Universe. That's a short I, one, Jason. Okay. Right. I know what the answer is. I've, I've accepted it because I think I was historically wrong. But okay. did you guys at the time ever engage in a schoolyard debate over whether <laughs> He-Man was saying, I am the power or I have the power? It's I have the power. I know the answer. It's right. I think it may have been on the wrong side of the history on that one. I can't remember for sure, but I remember <laughs> heated debates about what the man was saying. Oh, really? I mean, to uh, me, it was never yeah. an in question. It was I have the power. I am we the had, power doesn't even make any sense. Equal, I am the power. <laughs> It's also very compelling. I think it's better scripted. It's like more poetic. Yeah, I have the they, power. They did an episode like a, where like they revealed where the power comes from. The power comes from the core of. Actually, I I have like a, I bought like a five dollar set in, at Walmart. It was like the ten best as voted by the fans episodes. They were all horrible, by the way. <laughs> and I, I watched them, and like one of the episodes was uh, Tila fell down. There's like this bottomless pit that surrounds Castle Grayskull. And she was, she kind of fell down, but like got caught on a ledge or something. And he summoned the power and all this energy comes up from that bottomless pit that goes to Eternia's core. Uh, and that's yeah. like when that, that when the, you know, makes the transformation, that's where it comes from. Apparently that's the just, core of Eternia. It doesn't work as well as, as a simple declarative sentence that she has <laughs> obtained the power. I now have it. It's more like, I am the power. <laughs> I actually think you hit on something more powerful in your explanation. I have obtained the power. Now that would have been clear and catchy. Yeah. <laughs> I think too, it's too straightforward. I have done the transformation. <laughs> it's, it's, I am the power. We thought it was just so. I ten percent complete. Twenty five percent complete. Buffering. Downloading. Buffering. I'm giving a stop. <laughs> Buffering. <laughs> So I have a question, James, because I the toy the toys came before the cartoon for He Man, right? Right. Yeah. So um, if I mean, I highly recommend that Art of He Man book from Dark Horse it, because it's not just like the artwork; it's basically kind of a history of how Mattel came up with yeah. it. But basically, uh, man, what's the guy's name? I want to say Roger or something, but I, I I haven't looked at it in a bit. But basically, a dude he was coming up with this toy line, and the reason he called it He-Man was because there were going to be three different versions of the character, and you could kind of put the different accessories on him. It was going to be a, uh, a soldier, uh, a futuristic uh, guy or whatever, and then a uh, barbarian, and you could kind of mix and match. 
and he kind of presented it to Mattel, and I think they just were like, well, we like the Barbarian the best. And because there's a current stick. craze going on. <laughs> right. Well, there was the craze, but also the other other ones were pretty popular, too. The, uh, you know, the futuristic one could have easily caught on, but I think it was the combination of, you know, like you said, there was a huge Arnold Schwarzenegger Conan craze. There was Star Wars. And I think I think at the time, too, they just maybe wanted to keep it a little simple. So they they kind of created this toy line, and I think they were – I think Master of the Universe is famous because they were the first ones to where the toy line influenced the show rather than the show influencing the toy line. Like the show mm -hmm. is basically just, you know, a 22-minute ad for the, the toys. toys in a way. New characters, yeah. So did – so the toys debuted in 83? Um, toys might have been before. The way I remember, they might have been in '82. That's what I, I was wondering. It almost simultaneous in the sense that I was always aware there was a toy. I don't ever remember thinking, "Hey, they've now come out with a toy." It was like a toy. Well, because the toy was the toy first. was definitely. They might have kind of designed it to like come out as the toy came out. I don't really, a hundred percent know the timing. Yeah. Well, I, my memory of because I remember the the first thing was the commercials for the toys. Yeah, with little you know thirty second stories or whatever. With yeah, actually, hands. you can go on YouTube and see the like the very first filmation animation. It was for a He Man toy commercial. It was like you know oh. you remember how in the the toys they had those little squares on his straps or whatever, mm -hmm. and in yeah. the cartoon they didn't. In this in this uh, filmation mm -hmm. ad, they had you know it was toy accurate. The animation was a little bit nicer than the animation they used. Uh -huh. So you should look it up on YouTube. It's pretty cool. Uh, I meant just. Seeing little kids playing with the actual toys was like, I got to have those. Oh, yeah. No, I don't, I, honestly, it's one of those things I don't even – it's like I don't remember my first comic book at all. I just oh, always my. remember having read comics. My In my earliest memories, one of my very earliest memories was when we were living in California, and we had like one of those TV sets where it had like 15 or 20 buttons on the side, and that's all the channels you got. Right. They had 20 buttons, so I just pushed every button until He-Man came on one of them. <laughs> and somehow He-Man was on the very last one. I don't know how that um, happened. but To me, it was like a – there was a, there was a definite time in between because I I remember like I think I had He Man and Skeletor and probably some other ones too, just because they would come out like in commercials it would be like right. Skeletor has a new henchman he's called Merman, <laughs> yeah. and I was like well now I need Merman and I think well, he I doesn't had, sound gay at all I want him <laughs> I think I had a couple and then suddenly it was like you know there's gonna be a cartoon about these guys and it was like oh this what a time to be alive <laughs> what a time to be a five year old. No, yeah, I mean, my memory is really bad, and my memory of my early childhood is very hazy. But um, and I will tell you this too: the the first episode that I finally was able to see, I was so excited, like, oh, it's gonna be He Man, and Skeletor, and Beast Man, and Merman, and it was like twenty two minutes about Orko. Oh my god, <laughs> that's horrible. horrible. <laughs> I don't know, why, like, I, I watched kind of the first Thundercats episode earlier today, and that snark, <laughs> and I'm like, why did they feel the need? I don't remember any of my friends loving Orko. You know, like none of us right. liked Orko. None of us liked Snarf. We only identified with the the steroided up barbarian. That's the one we wanted. That's the one we yeah. liked. And Panthro. Panthro was awesome. But yeah. other than other than those, you know, I even Man at Arms. I was like, who cares about this guy? You know, <laughs> I was like, let's just get to He Man. Like Stratos can fly at least. You know. Another point about the style of the time is that. A lot of toys were like that at the time. It's hard to recreate what a toy shelf looked like, but Star Wars had caused the wave of, you know, right. three and a half inch high plastic figures being the thing. Then there was this wave of kind of He-Man-like muscular big calves, kind of in a <laughs> in a 
aggressive thing. There were these sumo wrestler things. There was a lot of action figures that were muscle bound. So he was, he really didn't start that. That was, I think they were kind of saying we want to come yeah, out. I, I don't they, know. I mean, uh, the, backwards from, I like that big muscle bound sort of steroid looking figure. We think that can sell. <laughs> I think the different. I think what happened is between the release of those uh, Star Wars toys and the, the huge muscular He-Man toys, um, and and the creator of He-Man kind of mentions that too. He's like, I kind of want. I was envisioning a figure as wide as he is, as tall almost. You know, he was that pumped up. But uh, <laughs> was the, the kind of the rise and ascension of Arnold Schwarzenegger and the whole bodybuilding culture. There's pumping iron and then Conan the Barbarian. So. There was that time in like the early '80s, like bodybuilding was very cool and very in. And uh, yeah, I'm saying it affected toys. I'm saying that was part of a whole trend that really wasn't groundbreaking for He-Man. It was, it kind of capped it all. But toys had the action figures were getting to that muscle-bound look. Probably I'm trying to think of one that preceded He-Man. The only one I don't know what the timeline was for, but I've seen the uh, Black Star action figures by Galoob, and they were like just as pumped up as He-Man, if not more so. Because yeah. their legs weren't tiny like Mighty Mouse. Um, <laughs> That's what we were seeing at the time. We were seeing big calves, big, huge chests. Really? Yeah. Before He-Man? When I drew comic books, too, I would use those He-Man figures as like anatomy reference because they were so cut and defined, you know? He-Man, for me, caught me a little too late. I was 14. It okay. came on after school. This was before ubiquitous cable channels. So it was a big deal if a show was running in syndication. When that happened, everyone was aware of it and watched it. So we would talk about it at school in ninth grade. We were <laughs> a little too old to be like, unironically, this is my favorite thing. But it was like, hey, did you see He-Man? I'm He-Man. And it was kind of <laughs> like this, it was popular. I mean, everybody was watching it. I, even my wife's father said, had told me that he had watched He-Man when it was on. <laughs> really? Yeah, I was um, shocked. I was like, man, I, how could you even be, as, a, as an adult man now that I, loves, loves, loves Heat Man, I just put a Master of the Universe sticker on my car. I, I can't even, I can barely get through one episode. It's like, <laughs> well, because like, well, you, when you watch, you just like, you want him to pummel someone. You like, like he'll yeah. beat up Skeletor and it's just let Skeletor walk away. I'm like, cut this motherfucker's head off. He just tried to <laughs> kill everyone. You know, what are you doing? Why are you letting him walk away? <laughs> pop, pop culture used to be more unified. It used to be, I mean, everybody had their, this is what I like, this is what you right. like. But there used to be a more unified body of work that we're kind of all aware of. If you went yeah. back to 1983, 84, if you were at some kind of gathering, a social, a church gathering, someone could make a joke. Look, he thinks he's He-Man, and everyone would laugh because they were <laughs> aware of this thing, He-Man. Even if they didn't like it, you knew it was out. Just like the same thing happened when the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles cartoon came out. Everyone knew what it was. Now there's just all these different channels of delivery of content. There's nothing you well, can yeah, really crack like a before, joke about. I mean, I, I mean I'm still old enough to, you know, I mean, in the early, late 80s, early 90s, it was still like that. And mm -hmm. uh, I, I think it was like, it used to be either it was mainstream or it was underground, you know? It was either, you know, out there for everyone and everyone knew about it or like almost no one knew about it unless you were like, you know, living in New York there City. There used to be much more of a mass media pop culture Right, it was either Superman or R. Crumb. You know, there was kind of yeah. like, you knew about it or you didn't. Yeah. Whereas now, everything is R. Crumb, except for, there's still a few things that kind of everybody knows about. But in terms of shows, not really. Yeah, I think <laughs> the only shows really you got, huge... you, you make a joke about a TV show right now in, a, in a, some classroom setting among adults, the odds of people knowing what the joke is are just, you know. <laughs>
you just don't have stuff like He-Man anymore. Something that comes out and all at once, it's for kids, but everybody still knows about it. Yeah, I think that, uh, you know, one thing that's interesting is that uh, there was a period of my life where I didn't watch football at all, which is most of my life, until I met my, my now wife, uh, who's way into, like, Colts, you know, football and all that stuff. And, you know, I, I actually know more about football now than her because I kind of... You're brave for sharing that, all right? ...way into things. And, well, honestly, though, it, what's weird is, like, it's opened up my ability to be social at, like, parties and to talk to men that I don't... You know, before I used to just kind of sit there and not really say anything to anyone. And now I can, like, oh, yeah, so uh, what would you think about... Like, it's, like, the only universal conversation started left, you know? It's, like... <laughs> Back in the day, everyone listened to the Beatles and the Rolling Stones. Now everyone's got their own unique thing. Back in the day, everyone watched MASH or uh, you know, Dallas. Now everyone's kind of got their yeah. own thing. Well, that's the way it is binging on Netflix, football. you know. It, it's probably that way a little bit everywhere. But in the South, that's what football is. Everybody, Everybody's either into it or talks about it like the weather. There's nobody that goes, what is football in the South? You know, it's, it's just... And uh, I've got. Well, I'll tell you how bad it. it was for me. Like, I went my wife in what two thousand nine, I think, yeah. and she and like Peyton Manning came on TV, and her friends were like, "Oh," and I was like, "Who the hell's Peyton Manning?" <laughs> That's like, amazing. I had never heard of Peyton Manning. I'd never heard of Tom Brady. I remember Peyton Manning when he was in high school. I remember. Yeah. I don't know who. I didn't know who they were. The only guys I'd ever heard of were guys I heard of back when I was in grade school. I heard of Joe Montana, Dan Marino, you know, uh, Troy Aikman, guys like that, but. Like Peyton Manning, like I was like, who's, who's that, you know? Well, you talked about crazies at the beginning of this. That's one of the things I love about football, and I will say this. I, it, it's a good sport. It, it's as good as any. It is my favorite. But I love the unifying pop culture effect because here's how it's different. The games are the same day of the week. If it's college, Saturday. It's pro, it's Sunday. So we're all on kind of this similar rhythm of the game. We talk about it on Monday. Tuesday, we talk about the one upcoming, we go to it, it's an activity on Saturday or Sunday if you're doing pro, but the point is, it is the sport above all others that is social and shared and is communal. Yeah. And to Whereas get it if back. You're a baseball fan, I mean, you had some game last night on a Tuesday night that you right. stayed up and watched. It was like 100, over 100 games or something. 100 games, I mean, it's like, an, it's the equivalent of a geek hobby in sports. Whereas football, moms, <laughs> right. grandmas, kids, you go tailgate, talk about who lost who won it's great it brings people together like he-man used to do <laughs> right yeah and to bring it back i think we we can all acknowledge that beastman was one of the greatest fullbacks of all time yeah, most <laughs> most offenses don't use a fullback anymore but um you know for his era he he was as good as any of them beastman of course i've forgotten what he even looks like he was the he's orange, orange. okay yeah He's orange and bestial. Like our president-elect. Who also goes by the nickname Beast Man. So yeah. there you go. I mean, it all comes full circle. You mentioned the Conan movie, though. I forgot all about that. Um, I love that movie. Guys, that's a great movie. came out in 82. Okay. And Arnold was at his sort of – he was sort of becoming a, a, a movie star. That was kind of right. his coming out as a, as a character movie. John Milius, one of my favorite writers and directors – guy that wrote Apocalypse Now, the guy that directed Red Dawn. So it's kind of a man's man movie. You guys Plus he did Blossom on NBC. 
You have got to, did he really? No. I just ruined my point. You've got to get the Blu-ray and listen to the commentary track because it's John Milius and Arnold together just sitting there shooting the breeze for that movie. I have the Blu-ray. Of course I have the Blu-ray. Arnold's sitting there going, oh, I remember that part. I, thought, I remember the way, you, the way you shot that. And then Milius is, Milius, for those of you who don't know, it's been speculated that the, that the John Goodman character in The Big Lebowski was based on John Milius. Oh, yeah. Gun nut kind of, I don't know, opinionated right winger that the Hollywood directors just thought was a hoot. And that's the way he is. You know, it's funny is um, uh, Arnold was on Howard Stern and the hour, it was a really, really great interview. It goes, he went from like the beginning of his career through the end and he talked about the Conan years and Conan had such a, a Conan. <laughs> Arnold was, that's a great line. He's like, he's like, so, you know, um, you've never acted before in a feature film. This is a huge movie. Everyone's been paying attention. Like, you know, how'd you prepare? Blah, blah, blah. He's like, well, you know, it's interesting. You know, I, I hired the uh, accent coach and I hired the acting and I went every day to the, um, to the acting coach and the accent coach and we worked on it so hard. And after the movie came out, I looked at it and I said, you know, I really, I really should get my money back. <laughs> that was a fun line. He was such a, like it didn't translate. I didn't succeed. <laughs> He was such a great. Uh, he was. It was a great interview. He's. He's a really uh, fun guy. Yeah, we got it. One day we got to talk about you guys are old enough to to maybe remember, but just the, the Arnold craze that Terminator caused. I mean, that oh, was the I was in the everybody uh, go. This guy is awesome. When I was, I mean, I'm an '80s kid, and like when I was in the '80s, it was like Arnold and Sly were gods. You know, it was Arnold. You know, Terminator and Commando posters and Predator posters everywhere. Uh, even in Korea, when I lived in Korea, yeah. like Korean boys would like draw. I, I had a uh, my my mom's friend, her son was like an older boy who I kind of looked up to, and he drew really well. And he would draw like Terminator and Aliens and all the American movies. So it was like that with Arnold, and you would see like you know obviously Sly with Rambo and Conan, but like it's I mean uh, Rambo and Rocky. But he, I, at the time in the eighties, even though Rocky is kind of the more revered movie now, it seemed like Rambo. You know, because you had the Reagan era, the Cold War. It was like Rambo was even more iconic, uh, at least when I, where I was in Korea. The pumped up, muscular male figure. Well, I mean, yeah, you look at... a uh, ubiquitous part of pop culture in the late 70s and the 80s. Look at action heroes before that, Steve McQueen and Charles Bronson and Clint Eastwood. They didn't have to have these... It was more about charisma, you know, and toughness, like acting tough, where, you know, they didn't have to have these puffed up physiques, whereas with Arnold and Van Damme and... Uh, sly you know like having this very muscular very chiseled physique was really important and it seemed important up and through what like the mid to late 90s so when you started to get like more keanu reeves-esque guys as action stars oh, please don't, let's not mention that name i'm losing it yeah the speed is a good movie stop i specifically remember the way stallone intentionally and openly turned to bodybuilding and Rocky three is a whole lot more ripped. And Oh yeah. It was almost like he was a different character after Rocky two. Yeah. And then if you remember Travolta looks a whole lot more ripped in staying alive than he did in Saturday night fever. I, I've never mm -hmm. seen uh, staying alive, but well, staying alive is the sequel. And I think Stallone was involved in it. He was either, a he was, I think yeah, he directed it or something directed it. And, um, uh, Travolta is super jacked, pumped in that, and he's in he's in this Broadway uh, dance show. You know, remember he's trying to make it as a dancer, going from the disco to making it as a dancer in Saturday Night Live, Saturday Night Live, Saturday Night Fever. And then, of course, he has to dance against the communists. And then, <laughs> in Staying Alive, 
which is more like 84. So by this time, He-Man has had a great influence on the pop culture uh, and staying alive. All for the better. Kind of making it as a, as a fledgling Broadway dancer. And the show they put on, the Broadway show, is just this sort of homoerotic. Uh, it's, it's a play about like a descent into hell. And all the men are wearing like human costumes and bulging out and doing these. Are you sure that it doesn't really sound like John Travolta to do something? Yeah, it erotic, so I, I don't really sure. find no, this whole no, unbelievable. Yeah. Staying alive is a very sweaty kind of He-Man. His hair is long. <laughs> I'm telling you, this was just the zeitgeist at the time. I mean, look at Rambo. He's like long-haired, muscular. Glisteny. Well, I mean, I always think about that uh, that montage. You know, it's like you know, it pumps you up. And at the same time, it's kind of weird in Rocky Three with uh, Apollo Creed and Rocky training together. Then at the end of the montage, they're both wearing belly shirts and they're like sprinting on the beach. Yes. And when Rocky finally beats him in the race, they like go, run into the water and like start hugging each other. <laughs> and it, you know, it doesn't make you gay to hug your buddy and everything. But like, what what's with the belly shirts? What happened? Like, why why are you doing this? Well, frankly, Rocky. <laughs> Rocky beating him in the foot race took me out of the movie in terms of my, yeah. my suspension of disbelief took a huge hit. When he, I, it looked like Carl Weathers wasn't even trying. He was out for like a stroll and it looked like well, they probably, Stallone was about to have an embolism on the beach. You know? <laughs> they probably shot the scene three times and, and it was like, you know, Sylvester, you're supposed to win. I'm trying. And Carl Weathers is like, I'm going to have to actually just kind of fake run here. Like, Carl Weathers, you know, it's almost a shame they never really found, like they had Action Jackson, but like he had so much charisma and like screen presence. It's a shame they could never find a role to kind of build around. You know what I mean? I, I could see him in a great movie. It's just that he never was in one besides Rocky. Oh, I know he's great in Predator. Predator, you know, that movie's Predator yeah. Predator. I mean, like a movie where he was the main star, like when he finally got a movie where he was like not the sidekick. It was Action oh, Jackson. It was horrible. You know, if only they yeah. could have found like a good Action Jackson, you know. It's yeah. like imagine if Stallone's only movie he ever did was Cobra. You know, it's just like it was a bad luck. He never got a Rambo or anything. He was always the sidekick. Yeah. Although he's great as Apollo Creed. You know the story about him reading for that part. They brought him in to read for yeah. it. He read for it on a couch. He read with Stallone. Sylvester Stallone. Sylvester Stallone, um, he wrote it and, you know, wouldn't let anybody but himself be cast in it. This was his baby. They bring in Carl Weathers, and he kind of, they kind of weren't clear what was going on. And after the reading, they said, that's great, Carl. And he's like, that's good. He's, I'm going to need to do it with a real actor, though. That's kind of hard to sort of get into character just with you guys. <laughs> and it was Sylvester Stallone he was reading with. Like, uh, hey, he said, uh, Carl, this is the actor. This is the lead. <laughs> oh, well, uh, maybe he'll get better. <laughs> and then Sly says, well, right there, I said, please hire this guy. Yeah. <laughs> so that that attitude was the perfect uh, attitude for Apollo Creed, though he was kind of an Ali knockoff and uh... very cocky. But maybe maybe Rocky had something to do with it. I mean, you had glistening boxing bodies, but this whole sort of male form thing happened right between there, and then it just. I mean, up. I guess if you go back, I mean, it, it seems like even though people, I guess the general culture has become more accepting of homosexuality, it seems like there's more of a homophobia. Uh, associated with, like, I guess, the male form. You know, back with Johnny Weissmuller. I remember kids used to strip down and jump in the pool and not think anything of it. Now that would be considered, like, fruity or whatever. You know what I mean? Yeah, part of it might just be simply the spread of steroids. I mean, the pumping iron era, those guys were taking, those guys were on the juice. <laughs> and it didn't used to be possible to have somebody just ripping out muscle-wise like they were in that pumping iron era. And by that, I mean 77, 78, 79. It got out of control. 
and you know, still guys look so natural now compared to modern bodybuilders. So take a look at a modern issue of like. Punk oh, it kept going. I mean, it's just I can't. It's I mean, ridiculous. They look so grotesque now. I don't. I feel like do. Arnold was like the peak, and then after he that, it, it got to be too much. But he was juiced. He doesn't look natural though. He can't. He can't sustain it without just you know. He was. There was no one ever before like him. So whether he did it naturally or not. Well, was, visually, that was a new visual like, on the face of the earth. He was the biggest, most ripped muscle man we've ever seen. And I think he, I think it emblazoned on the culture to where he created, he created this, this market for muscle bound, you know, glistening muscular heroes like he man. You know, it's funny too. He was so charismatic and interesting that like, if you really think about it, he's a horrible casting choice for the Terminator robot. You know, like the Skynet's like, well, we should obviously make our undercover robot that's inconspicuous, super muscular, Austrian, because there's a lot of them around in the United States, and uh, all yeah. black leather. You know, like he was like, he still got like a store thumb, even though he's supposed to be, you'd think you'd they'd make her look like a grandma or something, someone that you'd True, never but seen. like his strategy didn't seem to be subtlety in that movie. He would walk in and just start going, yo, I kill you. <laughs> and just a death machine. Actually, he never, those lines I just said, he didn't actually say those lines, but... <laughs> The lines got pretty bad by like the, you've been terminated. <laughs> I kill you, no. John. My favorite is uh, from Terminator Two. The end. John, go with your mother. Go with your mother, John. Go with your mother. Yeah. I now I kinda, know why you cry, but it is something I could never do. He's <laughs> the best. All right, boys. I actually, uh, I want to get grounded, so I better hang it up. Tell us, James or Jason, Thunder, He Man. We all agreed they were influenced by guys who had designed characters for the comics. What comic book artist do you think sort of in the run up to this era influenced the look? Well, let's give some credit where credit's due. Well, I think Frank Frazetta is kind of the godfather of sword and sorcery. He influenced the comic book artists that drew it, you know, including Barry Windsor Smith and John Buscema, who would probably be the next two most influential artists. Uh, you have Jack Kirby's work on Thundar and um, some of the other, kind of things he did. So I understand. that would be credited to Stan Lee. Understood. Right, right. Stan Lee, the puppet master, as I call him. <laughs> yes, um, he probably gave Jack Kirby that idea when he worked. Right. Yeah, I mean, there's so many different guys that were involved on, on the pop culture front. You know, the biggest name is Frank Frazetta. There are others. Uh, Alan St. John. Or Who's that guy that's kind of called out as a, as a photo reference hack? Boris Vallejo or whatever. Boris Vallejo was big. You know, he um, takes a lot of he takes a lot of heat for really just tracing photos or something. But I don't no, know. I mean, he wasn't tracing them, but he he was over reliance on them to the point. I mean, if you look at his seventies and eighties work, I felt like there was a little more naturalism to him. But his figures were always looked like they were posing because they were just posed guys from the gym. He or called whatever. models to pose, and he would yeah take a picture of them. Well, what's funny is like he would actually come up with a concept. He would sketch out the concept. Like I have some of his art books. He would sketch out the concept, and it would have a lot of life to it. And it was a really good drawing. Then he would get in his, his uh, models, and then they would kind of pose like he's drawing, and all the life would be sucked out of it, you know? I didn't see any problem with it. I got to tell you, I, I was a huge Conan fan as a as an adolescent forward. I mean, still am. But I'm just saying it started right around this He-Man era, really before. And it's because you guys remember the covers were great. These Now, these yeah. paperbacks were kind of bastardized versions of the Elrond, excuse me, the Elrond, what am I trying to say? The the original stories. And guys like El Sprague the Camp and these other ones would kind of modify them and make a paperback linked story on them. But the covers, same thing with Doc Savage. I mean, there's a pulp guy that they bring back 
again with the sort of muscle bound covers and those were John Bama painted covers most of the good ones well, James Bama, this right? sort of pulp revival with great painted covers play a key role in bringing it back because that's why I bought those books that's, yeah, that's the, the Bama covers especially you know if, if you were I mean the Howard Conan's are good but those Bama covers man they just meet I don't feel like I've ever read a, and I've read several Doc Savage books, and none of them live up to those Bama covers. It's like this, it, that guy was like Ray Spannon on steroids, you know, like the guy yeah. on those covers. He was like, oh man, if only I could read a, a story that lived up to how awesome this character looks, you know? I know. Uh, At least they're short. I mean, they're pretty short. They still seem kind of long just because the writing style is not very engaging, but they're short. I've got two Doc Savage covers in my office as like framed prints. I mean, he's he's definitely a great artist, and he, he's he's really good at painting westerns too. If you ever look at some of his other art, very good. Well, I I got actually I I could probably talk to you guys all night, uh, but I, I gotta hang it up before my wife grounds me. So. Yeah, let's bring it on. Anybody got you know some some final thoughts just to cap it off? Why what what explains more than anything else why shows like E Man, Thunder, Thundercats, and all the rest of it not just were popular with fans of geek stuff but in the pop culture sword and sorcery came back great I marketing was, i don't know <laughs> um <laughs> i think we just need to give our due to he-man even though i you know i, I think, go on the I record mean, I, I think I'm it's officially not a fan star of wars you know in conan they uh they brought back conan and that became very popular star wars obviously had the whole flash gordon swordsman theme it's like you know there's a lot of sword play in both of those things and uh i think he-man was just kind of a natural extension of it combined with you know all right. Well, here's. I mean, it's like the action figure thing. I mean, people see it as soulless marketing. Oh, they have the action figures, and the cartoon just sells the extras. But you know, Jay, as a little kid, you, you probably wish that you had a great Johnny Quest action hero set or something when you were little. Sure. I think uh, it probably manufacturing techniques probably had something to do with it. They were able to make them right. cheaper out of plastic. But I'll posit a theory: America, and therefore the world had become very jaded and dystopian and kind of just where everything was after the 60s, after Vietnam, after Watergate. Uh, everything was kind of hopeless and dim. And George Lucas makes this movie, Star Wars, that is, it's, it's space opera, it's heroic, it's broad strokes, it's black hats, white hats, the lightsabers are swords. The music is uplifting. I, I think the vision created an appetite for like, I like good guys and bad guys and I like fantasy and I like well, epic scale I also think and I like something that makes me sore. And I think that just sort of different than everything else. Yeah. Like sword and sorcery to just be popular. I think the way that I also think the visuals are a huge part of it too. Just the way it looked was so different and so much more believable than science fiction that preceded it. But that's not what makes it super different. I mean, that's, that's the huge part of it. The music, you could talk all day about the music and the special effects and the sound design was great. Everything about it was great. But that, the, the part that just makes it like this doesn't fit at all is this sort of unironic, heroic, you know, straight laced, bad guys, good guys, epic adventure. And I grew up with everything I, everything I wanted after that was, you know, the, the Skeletor and, and He-Man and just, just, we were, we were, it was okay again to like stuff that was about heroes and villains and, and good and evil and everything else. Kids always liked it. I just think it was it, it, to make money. People, uh, executives and decision makers were like, okay, this is back in. Star Wars is huge. Yeah, I guess the difference is because there was stuff like that for kids already with all the filmation. I think it pulled adults back into it too. 
mm-hmm. and teenagers. I actually, I really got to go. So right. I, I love you guys and I'll talk to you next time. All right. All right. Thanks for listening, everyone. Join us next time for episode four.